You're listening to Pastor Mike Greiner of Harvest Community Church in Catanning, Pennsylvania. We pray that you will be challenged today as you listen to a sermon entitled, A Tale of Two Women, based on Revelation 19, verses 7 through 9. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org. Let's join Pastor Mike as he preaches. Increasing the health and size of God's church everywhere, that's our mission because that's what God is doing, but it's not local to us at Harvest Community Church. Um, It is uh, a very big story that you're a part of, and I'm a part of. We're, and, and our text today, you can open your Bible now, is Reve- whenever you want you can open it, but I suggest if you want to know where, I'd go to Revelation chapter 19. We're going to go to the very end of the Bible, Revelation 19, verse 1 to 9. Um, be- and we're going to the end because the end of the Bible has the big picture. And we're part of a very big story. We have a uh, 9, 10, 11, 12, a 12-week series of which this is week number two. Um, then three uh, messages on prayer, three on evangelism, three on discipleship. Wait, wait, 12, 13, no, 12, 13, 14, 15-week series. I'm not good with math. <laughs> Week series. And then three on um, uh, stewardship. So this is the second of two introductory sermons, if you will. So it's going to be a very broad picture. And it's so broad, I'm going to ask this. What is God doing in all of human history? That's the question we want to ask and answer from Revelation chapter 19 today. What is God doing in all of human history? And the answer is he's raising up a church, okay? He's raising up a church, uh, sometimes called his bride, like in Ephesians 5. Um, The church is the bride of Christ. So he's Building a church. All of history is building a church, starting not just from 0 AD, but all the way back to the beginning of mankind. God always had in his plan to make a people for himself, a nation for himself, a bride for himself, a church. The word church means the gathering or the assembly. And his assembly isn't just here in Pennsylvania. It is worldwide and throughout time. The reason history happens is because God is calling his church. But that's focusing on those who will be part of that church. What about those people who are not part of his church? There's a lot of people in history who are not part of his church. What's God doing with them? Well, in a way, he's coalescing them together too. But not into a church, but into an anti-church. I just made that up, okay? (laughs) Well, not just. When I wrote this sermon, I made that up. Someone else might have said it, but if you're looking in the Bible, where's the anti- I found the Antichrist, where's the anti-church? It's not in there, that's not inspired, it's just my way of saying, he coalesces the rest into a group too. They're not the church, they're the anti-church. Symbolism and metaphors are used in the Bible, often because they can help us in a simple way see a complicated thing. In this case... In, in Revelation 19, symbolism helps us see a very big thing. And our text is, has some symbolism that I think is very challenging for my imagination and my mind and my brain because it shows the biggest picture possible of the church and of the anti-church. So in Revelation 19, we're going to see two symbols. And both of them are women. Two women. One is a bride. You know that's the church. Beautiful bride. 
Can you envision one in your mind? I've done a lot of weddings. Never seen an ugly bride. Never seen an ugly bride. There's something that happens to a woman on her Not that women, I'm not saying I ever see ugly women. She know what I mean. Something happens to a woman on her wedding day, and she puts on that dress, and no matter how beautiful the other women in the room are, she glows, and she shines. And so at the end of history, one of the women is a bride, but the other woman's a prostitute. It's quite a contrast. So let's look at the Bible together. Revelation 19, starting in verse 1. With me? After this, I heard what seemed to be... uh, Where am I? Where are we? John the Apostle is writing this. He's in a vision. Okay, He's having a vision. John is like... It's it's, it's A.D. 90-something. He's in prison on an island like Alcatraz. Right, but Patmos is the island. And uh, he's in prison for his faith. It's 90-something A.D. Now, when did Jesus die on a cross? In the 30s, right? So this is like 60 years after. He has seen God work in the church for six decades. By the way, that would mean um, that when he walked with Jesus, John must have been a very young man, perhaps in his early 20s, which is funny because often in paintings, uh, Jesus is... His uh, apostles look much older than him. You know, these long beards and whatnot. But John was probably a very young man, younger than Jesus. And now he's the only one who survived this long. All the others have gone home to see Jesus through violent means. Every single one of them killed for their faith. He remains. He's seen the church go. And now he, um, he's actually seen the destruction of Jerusalem. It would fall in AD 70 under the Romans. Um, not that they didn't have it already, but they rebelled and, and the Romans came in and crushed and tore the temple down. He saw all that bloodshed and it's about 20 years after that and he's on an island dying. And on the Lord's day, God says, I want to show you something. And I want you to write it down. And we're in the middle of this apostle's vision. Actually, we're at the end. So he's in heaven When he says, after this, that's where we are. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. Um, At Harvest, at every single campus, you just worship God with your singing. And you heard a band, and they turn it up. So it's loud, and then you add your voices, and that's loud. But but, uh, you could have louder multitudes than that making noises. This is heaven's multitude. This is a sound that you, I don't think we can imagine what it sounds like to hear the myriads of heaven in unison shouting, crying out. John heard it. What were they crying out? Hallelujah! You know, praise be to Jehovah, which is the name of God. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders, some sort of heavenly beings, and the four living creatures, heavenly beings, fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. So John's seen a heaven, 
God has done something worthy of tremendous praise. And he gets the tremendous praise. God had just done something in chapter 18. Now we're in chapter 19, and in response to whatever he did, everyone is saying, hallelujah, how great he is. Well, what is it that he did? Well, our text tells us that smoke is going up from a, a dead prostitute. So it says a mind-blowing little symbol there, isn't it? I mean, in, in your life, before now, before reading this, perhaps in other days that you've read it, have you ever just had in your brain a worship service while the smoke of a dead prostitute raises up in the midst of the, of the bunch? I mean, it's a really crazy kind of view there. And he, God has avenged the blood of his servants. Whoever this prostitute is, she's been killing his servants throughout history. And it's true that God's people have been opposed by the people of earth throughout history. Isaiah was sawn in half in the Old Testament. Stephen was stoned to death shortly after Jesus ascended. And it's been that way before and since. Millions have died for the name of Jesus. Today, people still die for the name of Jesus. In fact, we're in a time of great persecution of the church. Some say this has been the greatest age of persecution ever. There is an organization online called opendoorsusa.org. Now, many of you heard that, and that's good. What's he going to say about it? But some of you, I know what you're like. You're those type A folks. You want to write that down because you want to look it up. So for you, I will say it again, opendoorsusa.org. And they, opendoorsusa.org dra- uh, tracks different nations and tries to get data on how they're treating Christians. And right now, they say we're in a spike. They estimate 322 Christians are killed for their faith every day these days. 322. So um, if you're uh, in Indiana or in Freeport or PVC, if all of you are to be killed for your faith right now, that's about the right number. You're all gone. If you're in Catanning, if everyone in the building right now is killed because you're a believer, you don't just die of natural causes, that's what we're losing every day. I got up this morning, I expect to go to bed alive. I mean, you never know, but I expect to, don't you? There's 322 people on average who are going to wake up somewhere on this planet and because of the name of Jesus, doing nothing wrong, they will be slain. And what this is telling us is, is throughout time, that injustice has happened, and it's, and it's war, not against those people, but against God, and God has avenged himself. And because of that revenge, there is worship going on. Now, who did he get his revenge against? A woman named Babylon the Great. Now, that's symbolic. It's symbolism. We have the symbolism, the church as a bride. A bride is a symbol. When we get to uh, our final glory, as it were, we're not all going to coalesce like a puzzle into a great big woman. It's a symbol. But the symbol of those who coalesce against God is a woman named the anti-church, <laughs> is a prostitute. 
let's fill in a blank here and, and get this truth down in writing. Babylon, which historically was a city as well as an empire. There was a real city named Babylon and a real empire. Is here viewed figuratively. It's not the city, it's not the empire being referred to. Figuratively as a prostitute. Representing powers that intoxicate man. By that I mean mankind. So men, women. Throughout history. Including and probably especially false religion, sexual perversion, greed, and the power that goes with them. The picture the Bible gives us uh, is based on this simple idea. Faithful men pursue their own wives. Unfaithful men go after the prostitute. Very simple idea. When I was um, uh, more recently married, I had maybe one kid. Yeah, I definitely had one kid. I'm counting them up now. No, we had a second. I was going to a church in, in the Bay Area of California. Uh, I worked for a drugstore company and, and uh, went to... And in fact, I was in retail, so often I couldn't be in church on Sunday. So I made sure I made it to the Bible studies. And they had one for couples that the pastors, pastor would lead it. And, uh, and then, so we're sitting there, and, and he asks, what do you do as a man to show you love your wife? And it wasn't rhetorical. And he looked at me, and he asked me directly. And when the pastor asks you directly, you're kind of on the spot. You better say something good. And the first thing that came out of my mouth was, I come home at night. <laughs> It really was just a, I got to answer this guy, I can't say nothing. But the more I thought about it, I thought I'd come home at night. Like, what do men do when they don't come home at night? It's not good. It's not good. Faithful, if you're a young man and you're getting married, or you are married, what's the first and best thing you can do? Come home after work. Faithful men go home. Unfaithful men go to other ladies. Now what we're seeing in this symbolism is God is telling us that to be faithful to Him is like being faithful to a spouse and to be spiritually unfaithful to Him is spiritual adultery or prostitution. That's, that's the language. Ba- Babylon represents greed, Love of money and stuff and power that goes with it. Sexual immorality. Self-indulgence, perhaps drunkenness and drug use. And definitely false religion. How do we know this? Because the way she's described. Looking backwards to Revelation 18, 3-5 in one spot, it says, For all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. The kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. The merchants of the earth have grown rich. From the, I was just reading about the North Korean dictator in the New York Times. He it was telling the story of how his second-in-command, who had helped his father um, to oppress the people. You know, you always need someone to help you oppress people. You can't do it by yourself. And <laughs> it's a lonely job oppressing people by yourself. So... He was helping the son, but, but he had his own designs on power, and some think even his designs on bringing a little bit of, of, of relaxation of oppression to the people. So, so Kim Son, whichever one there, the guy is now, he, he takes the guy, 
to, a, to a, a place where they have guns, and he takes his two deputies, and he rips them in half with bullets right in front of them. Then the man faints. A couple weeks later, it's him. The kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. Right? He's supposed to be a god, this Kim John, whatever his name is. He's a really odd god. He's kind of goofy looking. This is Babylon the Great. Right? The kings of the earth. They use religion and power. The merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. The powerful and the small of the earth. He's not calling the kings out there. He's calling everybody out. Run to the prostitute and her filth. Whether it's the strip clubs in your town, the greed, the drugs. This is strong figurative language. He's not talking about a woman. But boy, is there any pull more encompassing in us than the the pull to the opposite sex? There really isn't. The sexual pull, the, the relational pull. People will give up everything to have their lover. And God lays out all the sin that tempts mankind away from him as a prostitute. So the bride represents the church. Babylon represents what then? The evil that men run after. And God preserves the church forever. What does he do to Babylon? He destroys her. It says her sin is heaped up. He's keeping score. He knows how much sin. He counts. You you might think, well, I'm getting away with this. With what? Well, whatever. I got away with it. No one knows I did it. Years have gone by. I'm starting to forget. God doesn't forget. Every sin he sees. Every one he remembers. Heavens. So he, at the end of all time, in some way, he destroys her. And heaven's response to this vengeance is they break into a worship service. Oh, happy day, baby. They're like, yeah. Now, that's an odd thing when you think about it. It's not, we don't normally, you know, people come to church. Guess what? What? A really bad person was, was um, executed today. Yay! Worship God! <laughs> kind of a, you know, it's good, I guess, when bad people get their vengeance, but I don't normally break into song over that, do you? Verse 5. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. And then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters. Could you imagine standing near Niagara Falls and just hearing nothing but the waters? And instead, it's a, you hear it's not just water, it's a voice. 
And the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. And this is the vision of the end of history that God gave John and John gave to us. So we're supposed to look at it. God judges mankind for his unfaithfulness. And I remember God's son, when he walked on the earth, said, Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. It's very important that you know who Jesus is. Because at the end of mankind, there will be a resurrection of everybody, living, dead, righteous, and unrighteous. And all the sins will be known. And those who are not covered by the blood of Christ will pay the price. Let's, Let's put this in writing. When God destroys the wickedness of man on earth, in heaven a command goes out to all. To praise God for what he's done. I do not have a profound insight on that. I find that startling. I find that it it takes, I'm like, what do I do with that? Bunch of people thrown into hell or perhaps whatever the judgment is. The temptation's taken away. Boom, let's celebrate. But as I think about it, I, I, I start here. Who can bring an end to war? War is horrible. People go out and just shoot each other. <laughs> it's just a bad idea. Who can bring an end to injustice? To all of, today, all over the world, there will be children molested by family members. And they'll be hurt so badly that it'll scar them for the rest of their lives. Today, all over the world, someone's getting raped. Someone's getting lied to. Someone's getting betrayed. People are being violently attacked. People are being murdered. Who can bring an end to all the pain? Who can punish the evil? God alone. And when he does, praise. That's that's the scene we have in heaven. And that's the scene of the fall of the one woman, the prostitute. But just at that moment, the angel turns John's attention away from her to someone else. (laughs) Stop looking at the smoke of the prostitute. I want you to look over here. And John, he's in heaven. When you're in heaven, you do whatever the big angel says. I said, look over here. Okay. Verse 7. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And the bride has made herself ready. Quit looking at the prostitute who's dead. Look at her. For it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Write this, when you, I, I need this written down. You're seeing a vision, but, but you don't live in vision land. You lived in real earth, and what you write is going to be read. You tell the world this, happy are those who are invited to this supper. And he said, these are the true words of God. You see, while mankind runs towards the wickedness of the prostitute, runs towards unfaithfulness to God, runs full speed and joyfully into sin, God is doing something beautiful. He's creating his bride. He's creating his church. Let's put this in writing. All of history is a tale of two women. One symbolizes the evil of man, 
the great prostitute Babylon. The other is the bride of Christ, his church. One survives this earth and is celebrated in heaven. The other is thrown down and destroyed. This is the big picture God gives us. And I'm thankful to him for, that he uses symbolism because the details are probably too much for my brain. Two women defined by their relationships with men. Oh, the feminists would hate this. That's why feminism hates the Bible. Two women defined. All of history is two women defined by the relationship. Today's feminism has got us so in circles, we don't even know where you're supposed to go to the bathroom. Men's room or women's room. <laughs> we don't even know what you're supposed to do with marriage. Who you're supposed to date. But God doesn't just define us two women. They're women who are defined by how they relate to men. One causes unfaithful men to come to her. The other causes the faithful man to love her. God sets himself up. <laughs> Somehow in the midst of that, as the one you are loving or spurning. So... What do we do with this? If God lays out this ominous big vision, see, next sermon is going to be on prayer. So we're going to start to narrow it down and look at the smaller things of life, bites that are easier for me and you to to chew. But God must want us to look at the big picture because he spells it out. So what are we supposed to do with this? Really, I've only got two, two applications, two directions. One, we must realize that every human being can choose whether he will be destroyed chasing Babylon or saved as part of the bride of Christ. To stay with the symbol, you're either going to be destroyed with the prostitute or saved with the bride. And you got to choose. you got to make your choice. No one can make it for you. Nobody's kids are saved just because they're your kids. You're not saved because your wife is very devout. She isn't going to sneak you in, and you're not saved because your husband's a good guy. you got to choose. So what do we have to do do if we want to choose the great whore, the great prostitute Babylon? What do we got to do? Where do we go to make that choice? You want to register your choice. I want to be part. I want to laugh with the sinners. I don't want to die with the saints. Sinners are much more fun. Only the good die young. Where do I go? What do I got to do to choose the great whore Babylon? Here's what you have to do. Nothing. Do absolutely nothing. This is the part that of truth that some may find insulting, but it's not meant as an insult. Well, if it is, it's from heaven to me and you. It's in your nature to chase her. You are the greedy bugger. You are the one whose sensuality and your sense of self-indulgence matter more than anything. You are the one who runs after other gods that aren't the real God. You are the greedy bugger. You are the power hungry. You say, oh, that's not me. (laughs) It's you so deep you don't even see it. You want to know how I know? Board games. (laughs) No one has to explain when you play Monopoly why the goal is to get the most money and exploit your friends 
with high rent when they land on your property. No one has to tell you why that means winning. Play the game of life? Love that one. Take your little car, you collect kids. You can tell that's not a modern game. Modern game, they'd have, okay, abortions. They'd kill your kids. And <laughs> but you know, what's the goal? To get to the end of the game of life with the most kids and the most money. Chess! Checkers! I'm playing this game now with my adult children because I like spending time with them. And if they'll come over, I'll do anything they want, just about. I'm in that emptiness stage called Dominion. Dominion! No one has to explain to us that we're supposed to romp and take the most stuff for ourselves, have the most pleasure. It's in us! I mean, if Jesus was playing the game of life, he'd be like, tell you what, I just spend this, you can go. <laughs> I just want 100 bucks, you can have it. All human beings naturally love treasure, pleasure, and self more than they love God, and that includes you. It's by nature. The Bible's clear. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Not one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. You might be saying, this is such a pessimistic view of mankind. Listen, I'm telling you the truth. If Jesus does not interrupt life, if he really is the blind watchmaker who just stirs things up and lets them go, you'd see it. If he hadn't interrupted you, you think you're good? You ain't. I go to church. Big Deal. You ain't all that in a bag of chips. You ain't even all that. Jesus doesn't interrupt you. You'd see it. You live in the brothel. If you think you're too good for that, you need to look in the mirror of the Word of God. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive Oh, not me. Oh, right. You don't deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses. Not me. Oh, no. You never run down that girl who did what? I can't believe her. He is such a jerk. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way you want to see this, just go to a Trump rally. Gosh. I'm serious. Watching some video, they just punch a guy as he's walking out. Just punch him. Their master says, punch him in the face. They punch him in the face. This is humans. This is what we're like. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Stay as you are, and you will be unfaithful automatically. That means everyone who comes to Jesus is actually repenting of sin. That's why the Bible says repent. You have to leave the prostitute. Now what must you do to become part of the, the bride of Christ? Leave the prostitute and run to the bride and join her by faith in the name of Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus came to earth on a rescue mission. And you know what that rescue mission is like? It's like Hosea of the Old Testament. Now, guys, listen. This is your encouragement to love your wife with all your heart. 
right? Because, and, and, and for most of you, that, that's probably a joyous journey with difficult times. For some, though, it's, it, you might think, well, it's always difficult time with occasional joy. Well, don't you complain because you're not Hosea. God said to Hosea who he'd marry. He said, you're going to marry that woman named Gomer. There's your first problem right there. <laughs> There'll be a sign unto you. Surprise, surprise, surprise. <laughs> and guess what she does for a living? She's a prostitute. Oh, that's all right. Hosea's like, I'll marry her. God will clean her up for me. You know what I mean? I catch a fish, he cleans them, and she'll be all right. She, and, and so she starts bearing him children. This is pretty good. This is pretty good. You know, it's kind of like a Bob Seger song, Night Moves. I'm going out, and I'm saving her, and I love her, and everything's good. And then after a while, what does she do? She starts stepping out. She starts getting a little extra cash. She stops coming home. She runs back to her old lifestyle. And at this point, he could say, well, I know Jesus hasn't come yet, but when he does, there'll be a loophole. I can divorce her. God says to him, go get her back. I can't. She's pimped. Somebody owns her now. Buy her. And he has to go back out, and he buys back his filthy, faithless wife. Why did God do that to Hosea? Because he's showing that that's what God does for his bride. We are the filthy, faithless wife. And he loves us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Look what the text says. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. Where do God's people come from? They're not coming from the monastery. (laughs) They're coming from, come out of her. That's because you're there with her. Lest you take part in her sins. Lest you share in her plagues, the punishment. Remember Jesus said, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. For her sins are heaped high as heaven. And God has remembered her iniquities. History, a, a good way to look at everything that's happened and the reason everything happens is Jesus is gathering a group of people. That's all that history is, is Jesus standing there saying, come out. And those who hear come out and he cleans them. That's why he's called the good shepherd. That's why we have the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. He's building a flock, another symbol. He died for the sins of those he's calling. The only holy, righteous man. He said to his father, I will pay for her filth. So he died for me and you. He paid for my filth. For my running after the prostitute. I am the good shepherd, John 10, 11. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Heck, that's a great shepherd. (laughs) Not that I'm correcting you, Jesus, but that's an awesome shepherd. And Acts 20, 28 speaks of the price Jesus was willing to pay for you and me. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. The church and the flock are the same thing, which he obtained with his own blood. What if you had to buy something with your own blood? I don't mean just a little. I mean... 
You can give up a pint for a blood drive. You get it right back. But what if you say, man, I want this car. I've always wanted this car. So you go to buy this particular car, and what's it going to cost? All the blood in your body. You're like, it's not worth that much. Go with your teenage daughter. Daddy, buy me the car. It's going to cost me all the blood in my body. I don't care. Okay. No, car's never worth that. I would say nobody's worth that. You're not going to kill yourself for anybody. Just about, maybe in a moment of passion for a family member. Jesus lays down his life and he buys us with his blood. The shepherd buys the sheep with the price of his own life. He stands now. Jesus died on a cross, but he rose from the dead on the third day. And he ascended into heaven and he's going to come back again. But he stands at the right hand of God now and he calls out. And what is his voice saying? Leave her. Come to me. I will forgive your sins. Join this flock. Leave that one. The two ladies. Don't go to her. Come to me. Come to my lady, the church. It's appointed to man once to die, then the judgment. There's not going to be a second chance. Life and death are placed before you. If you're at church and it's often people will come and join us in worship who do not know Jesus as their Savior, say, well, I'm in the church. You're in a building, not a church. Church is people. If you're in the gang, it means you have left the prostitute and you are sold out to the master. That your heart loves God first. Well, life and death are placed before you and only you can choose. And you might say, well, Jesus won't take me. I'm awful. I know you're awful. I just got done telling you I'm awful. And those nice people sitting near you, They are the worst. (laughs) Just ask them. But Jesus promised all of us, if you come to me, I will never cast you out. He didn't come to throw us to hell. He came to save us. So that's the first thing. Choose Jesus, not Babylon. Choose the church. Second, this is to the Christian. We must Work on the dress while we can. This doesn't work for me. I'm not a seamstress. I don't like to sew, but I don't even like wearing dresses. (laughs) Um, (laughs) What do I look like? An Olympic decathlete or something? You know, I know they like wearing dresses, apparently, if you... It's a Bruce Jenner joke. I guess you didn't get it. That means we must do the works of Jesus while on earth. That's how you work on the dress. Thank God it moved to work. That's something I can understand. For those who are part of the church, you're not to be idle. Yeah, I'm safe. <laughs> you're not supposed to be idle. It's not supposed to end it. If history ends like that, with what are you doing with your life? That didn't, you know what I mean. Look at our text again. Verse, the end of seven and beginning of eight. His bride, that's you, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself in fine linen. It was granted her, I mean given to her as a gift. You're not going to be in heaven because of the good deeds you do. You're going to be in heaven because of faith in Jesus who did the good deed of dying for you on a cross and rising from the dead to set you free. But you are given the gift of a life, of breath, of wealth, of talent, of opportunity. 
And it has been given to you as a gift. That's what granted means. To do good. And that's how the dress gets beautiful. For the, he has granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Righteous deeds. Not deeds that make you righteous. Deeds done because you are righteous. They're righteous deeds. If there's one thing that often looks far from beautiful in history, it's God's own church. I wish it weren't so, but an honest reading of history shows often it's the church that's kind of ugly. She ain't acting right. (laughs) But somehow, God is at work pulling beauty out of every generation of the church, making his bride ready. See, the righteous deeds of the saints are the righteous deeds of individuals in the church. That would mean you, singular you. Bride, church, that's all plural stuff. But you as an individual have a contribution to make to the dress. What are these righteous deeds then? Well, the whole Bible speaks of what God says is righteous and good, but I think a a good argument could be made that the righteous deeds of the saints are simple to categorize because they're whatever God would be working on if he's here, right? Our deeds should be his deeds. What is God's work? John, uh, in John chapter 6, Jesus is asked that very question, and watch how he answers. It's kind of wild. They said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? What a great question. Have you ever asked that yourself? You say, God, what is your will? I'll do it. What is it? They're asking him, what do we got to do to make you happy, God? (laughs) And Jesus answered, this is the work of God. Yes, I'm waiting that you believe in him whom he has sent. Getting you from unbelief to belief is the work of God. Getting you out of the prostitute and into the church is the work of God. Building your faith is the work of God. Well, how do I play a role in that? The Bible gives Christians two ways. There really are just two, and everything fits into this. One, living a life of kindness and love, and two, declaring the good news of Jesus. Let me show you. Matthew 5, 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others. So they may see your what? Your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Let your light shine. The world is a dark place. But God's light is the church. So church, behave. (laughs) Act like light. Shine. We're not here to tell the world they're going to hell. (laughs) They are going to hell. We're here to tell them how to not do that. We're not here to judge them for their sins. You know why? They were our sins. We were all members of the same brothel club. (laughs) We were dues-paying members of the prostitute of the month club. We're no better than anybody. But the Lord has set us free, and then we're supposed to shine a light. How? It says, through your good works. Through loving kindness. And that loving kindness mostly takes two trajectories in the scripture. Let me show you one. John 13, 35. By this, all people will know. Now, if Jesus says, by this, all the world that lives in darkness will see light, is what he's saying. 
that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. How are the people to know you've really met Jesus? Well, I'm a Christian. I say so. Nope. Because I go to a church. Nope. Because I got a shirt on that says the name of my church. Uh Uh-uh. Because of my denomination. No. You can say all those things and they can associate that with Christianity. But the only way to make sure they understand that you know Jesus, that you have a relationship with him, that you are his follower, is that you have love. Look for other people in the church. That's what it says. Do you have love for one another? That's how you shine a light. I don't need the church. They're all a bunch of hypocrites. I'm a Christian, but I don't like all them folks. Them preachers, they're no good. They just want your money, and they don't like you anyway. And uh, all those people, I don't like none of them folks. They're all hypocrites. Well, (laughs) we're your hypocrites. So come join us. We could use another one. You can't love Jesus and not love his church. And that means people. So the way you love the church is one of the righteous deeds of the saints. But the other half of that good work is the way you love, now get this, the powerless. Yes, you should love everybody. You should love your enemies. You should love the lost. After you love the church, you should always love the church first. Right? You got, there's some guys who are so nice, they can't say no to anybody. They'll come fix your transmission. They'll fix your roof. They'll fix your plumbing. They're there for you when you need them. They got 50 bucks if you need to pay your bill. But in their own house, nothing gets fixed. It ought not be that way. First you take care of your family. Then you get take care of others. And it's the same. First you love the church. And then you love everybody. But if, if there's no denying that if you read the Bible, you will see a theme that goes from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and that is the way you love the powerless shows that you know Jesus. The way you love the socially powerless and the poor. It's put like this in James 1.27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That's a righteous life. But those widows and orphans, that, that would be the categories of their society that had the least money and the least ability to fend for themselves and the least amount of power. Like, like uh, I was seeing this uh, documentary that I couldn't take after a while because it was just too sad about this woman in Pakistan who, um, who was tried to be, they tried to honor kill her because she wasn't going to marry the right guy so they shot her and then they interviewed everybody and the one sister says well it was the right thing to do to shoot her they didn't kill her because uh she was dishonoring the father her mother was like this is my daughter and 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 it was just so sad because you can see this woman had no power no power god says the way you show love is you're with her you're with the poor proverbs 1431, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. You display the love of God on earth. Listen, who is the socially powerless in your world? In your high school, you know who it is. At your job, you know who it is. It's a person where you lose nothing socially to walk by them, to not know them, to not be on good terms with them. You know who they are. As Americans, that's very often has nothing to do with wealth. We're a wealthy nation, but they're still there. What do you think about the people in your country who live in the inner cities who were born 
into systems where they're constantly cycled into poverty, welfare, and crime. White Christian church, don't let your politics run your heart or you won't give a dang. You won't give a dang. You won't care. Jesus says, that's how you show the love of the church. But these acts must be attached to a message. Faith does not come by deeds, but by words. For Romans 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him if they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So faith comes from hearing, hearing from the word of Christ. If the work of God is to bring faith on the earth, you cannot just do good deeds. You can't just be loving. You're going to have to tell people the name of Jesus. You gotta get your Tim Tebow on, baby. You can save your Peyton Manning for some other planet. By that I mean he just retired, and I heard somebody say, well, in his retirement, he mentioned something about being a Christian, and I respect that. His whole time, he didn't always talk about God after every game, but he, was, he let it show in his actions, and like, I didn't even know he was a Christian. Give me Tebow any day. No question on who his Savior is, and no question who he's telling the world who his Savior is. Say the J word. You have to do it. You know the people. They're lost. You have the message of power. I am not ashamed of this message, for it's the power of God. You can say, well, I don't know how to preach the gospel. You should preach it as soon as you're saved. I don't know enough. You don't need to know anything. To say, you know Jesus. In the Bible, as soon as people knew Jesus, they ran out and got their family members and friends and said, you got to come see this guy. Here, I'll give you evangelism training right now. Ready? Right now. This will work. Ready? You have to remember four words. Can you memorize four words? Jesus died for sinners. Say that to an unbeliever. He'll go, "Uh uh-huh, and then explain it. What if I'm not good enough? It doesn't, never depended on you anyway. God gives the faith. You just tell the message. You say, well, then I got confused. Invite them to church. Invite them to come see us worship. We will tell everybody again. No bride looking towards her wedding celebration ignores her clothing. Oh, they may cut corners on what's on the table. They may say, we can't afford to invite that many people to the wedding. (laughs) They may argue about how many bridesmaids, how many groomsmen, but none of them ignore their clothing. Haven't met a bride yet who said, Roy, it doesn't matter what I wear. By love and by declaring the gospel, we increase the health and size of God's church everywhere. And my friends, that is what you are to spend your life on. Are you? Will you? Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church. We invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.